Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 101, Dr. Brian Leftow, From Jerusalem to Athens. Since 2002, Dr. Brian Leftow has been the Nolith Professor of the Philosophy of the Christian Religion at Oriel College, Oxford University. He earned a BA from Grove City College and earned his MA and PhD at Yale University. He taught for many years at Fordham University in New York City before moving to Oxford. Dr. Leftow has written over 90 professional articles and book chapters on metaphysics, medieval philosophy, and philosophical theology. He's published two influential books, Time and Eternity, 1991, and God and Necessity, 2012. And he currently has two forthcoming books, Aquinas on Metaphysics, Matter, Parts, and Number, and Anselm on God. I'm very glad to have him with us today to talk about his life and his work as a philosopher. Dr. Leftow, welcome to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Leftow, when I talk to a Christian philosopher, I often find that he was raised in a Christian home, but you were raised in a Jewish home in Brooklyn. When you were growing up, what did you and your family think about Christianity? I think it might be best to say we didn't think about it at all. There were people in the neighborhood who I guess were probably Catholic, I certainly knew they were Italian, but their religion had no impact on our lives and we thought or spoke nothing about it. I'll tell you something odd about the neighborhood. I had a tough time realizing that Jews were a minority group. I heard that said on TV, but almost everybody I knew was Jewish and that, that there were other things to be just wasn't a very live thought. So in your mind, were Christians just the same as Gentiles? I suppose if I had thought about it, I would have said that. The truth of the matter is, well, just, you know, there are the Jews and there are the Italians, and, you know, they're different. That was the extent to which I thought about it. And what sort of Judaism did your family practice? They didn't really practice at all, but they sort of wanted me to know where I came from, so they sent me to a Hebrew school, which I believe was probably conservative. And did this have a big effect on your thinking, on your religious outlook? I guess the only real thought that I absorbed during my time in Hebrew school was just that there was a God of some sort. Uh, I guess as soon as I became a reflective person at all, I sort of basically assumed that there was a God because that was what the grown-ups were telling me. So how did you become a Christian with that background, and how did your family react to your conversion? I really had almost no contact with Christianity or with non-Jews as long as we lived in New York. But uh, when I was a high school freshman, we moved to New Jersey, and for the first time I got to know some families who were, in fact, Christian, particularly one family. The husband had been a tree surgeon, but he'd fallen out of a tree many years before and fallen on his head. And the family lost just about everything they had uh, saving his life. The medical bills were pretty big. They had him at home caring for him, and it was very difficult because he wasn't always in control of his behavior or his temper. But despite us being a very trying situation, they were very cheerful and resilient people. And it seemed to me that my own family faced with similar circumstances would not have done nearly as well. I asked myself, what was the difference between their family and mine? And the only thing I could come up with was that they were Christian and my family weren't. So that got me interested. They never spoke to me about Christianity at all. It was just a matter of observation and deduction. 
because I'd gotten interested this way, I got a hold of a copy of the New Testament and began reading it on the sly. Every so often, I would sneak out and go speak to a local minister about things that I didn't understand. And after about six months of this, I just decided, well, this sounds true. I think I believe it. And I had myself baptized. And that was it. So did you have the New Testament under the mattress? I hid it in at the bottom of a book of a drawer near my bed. Uh, and I have other things on top of it. And I guess my mother just never thought to search my drawers. I mean, you don't think your kid's going to have contraband, so I guess. And my parents didn't find out about it for many months afterwards. Uh, they were at a cocktail party one night, and somebody, they, they were introduced, and somebody said, oh, you're the parents of the kid who, you know, oops. And they came home pretty furious. I decided that I wanted to be a minister. I guess new converts often do. So I went off to a college where I could be trained for that. They weren't going to pay for that, so I was under necessity of a college that I could pay for myself. And when I went off uh, to do that, they didn't speak to me again, and I didn't speak to them again for three years. Did the relationship turn around at a later point? Did you get any of those relationships back? Did you have any siblings also? Uh, I have one younger brother. He was unaffected by all this. Uh, you know, we both had our peculiarities to my parents. You know, I, I became a Christian. He set fires. I think they preferred his peculiarity to mine. <laughs> uh, well, after about three years in a Christian college, you know, my friends sort of got it across to me that I had kind of a responsibility to do better toward my parents than I had been. So we started speaking again my senior year. And, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point where, you know, I mean, they accept that I've done this. It, it's not like a stumbling block per se. And, and, and relations are generally pretty good. I think when I got the Oxford job, at least my mother started to think that maybe becoming a Christian had been a good career move, if nothing else. And my father, at least, I don't think he's ever entirely accepted this. The way I know this is, well, he, he's, he's very old now. He's, he's about 90, and sometimes he slips and says things he doesn't mean to say. I mean, they, they may be true, but he didn't mean to say them. We were driving somewhere not too long ago, and uh, just out of nowhere, he said, well, gee, maybe if I'd gone to the synagogue more, you wouldn't have. And then he stopped himself. Hmm. So that's obviously a thought he still has. Maybe they have some regrets that they, uh, you know, they could have prevented this, I suppose. Well, I, I guess that's, that's what he was thinking anyway. And, and obviously, if, they, if he thinks of it as something to be prevented, he still doesn't think of it as a particularly good thing that I did. It's just something he's learned to live with. Does having this background give you a different perspective on Christianity? I'm not aware that it ever has. Well, no, I guess there is this. I'm very strongly predisposed to think that there is an irreducible difference between being a Christian and being a Jew. I don't think Christian dogmas, insofar as they go beyond bare Jewish monotheism, are just symbolic or just, uh, you know, sort of prehistoric remnants of a consciousness we need to get rid of, or any of those other things that liberal theologians tend to say. You know, I 
went through a lot to make this change. And I made the change because I thought there was a big difference. And so you're not going to tell me uh, and that there is no big difference and not get an argument out of me. You're hostile to what philosophers call religious pluralism, that all religions are the same or they have the same practical value or something like that. Yes, I, I think that all religions make truth claims, and when those truth claims contradict each other, there's usually no smoothing them out. Uh, they're just contradicting each other, and they can't both be true. Dr. Leftow, so many people, Christian and not, assume that there's a conflict between Christianity and philosophy. You've made some interesting comments about this in the 1994 book, God and the Philosophers, where you published an autobiographical essay called From Jerusalem to Athens. I was wondering if you could read us the start of this essay. Sure. I am a philosopher because I'm a Christian. To many intellectuals, this probably sounds like saying that I'm a dog because I'm a cat. Dogs hate cats, and otherwise polite philosophers have said to my face with vigor that Christian philosopher is a contradiction in terms. Cats are not fond of dogs either. Christian friends have often reminded me that Luther called reason a whore. Well, reason is a whore. It will serve any master who can pay its price. But a whore was first to the empty tomb on the day of the resurrection. Reason will serve God if given the chance. Philosophy can be a work of Christian service. And Christian belief, I would suggest, is far more a help than a hindrance to serious intellectual work. Dr. Leftow, what are some ways that you have seen reason serve God? Well, one thing it can do is make clearer to Christians that what they believe makes sense. Good philosophical theology, good theology, explains the inner sense of Christian doctrine, what it means, why it's a plausible thing to believe. And these are useful things in helping people to maintain their faith. A second way that reason can serve God is a bit more aggressive. I mean, one can produce arguments that one ought to believe that God exists or one ought to believe the distinctive claims of Christianity. I don't think those things by themselves often produce conversions, but they certainly comfort the faithful in thinking that they can make a good case for themselves. And that's an important thing, even if they don't bring many in from outside the church just by themselves. Would it be fair to call that negative apologetics or defensive apologetics that in the face of uh, criticisms that Christian belief is obviously contradictory or incompatible with other things that we know now? You're saying that it can sort of undo some of those knots, that it can push back on some of those claims. I wanted to say that it can do both things, definitely the negative apologetic, but a bit of the positive as well. I, I don't think philosophical argument uh, is a very powerful instrument to produce conversion by itself. Conversion is something of the whole person, so there has to be more than just reason involved. But it can help. I had a student years ago who was the smartest student in class in all cases that I was aware of, and he was really down on organized religion. I just think he didn't believe in miracles, divine revelation, that sort of thing. And Yet, he studied the ontological argument, the modern modal ontological argument, and on the basis of that, he believed that there was a perfect being. Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, and actually, I'm very sympathetic with that. My own assessment of the case for and against God's existence would be this. If someone showed me something which they could give a very strong argument were the bones of Jesus, 
I wouldn't be a Christian anymore. But I would probably, I think, still remain a somewhat convinced perfect being theist. I would believe that there is a God and that he's perfect. And I would do that on the basis of my evaluation of the philosophy on the subject. Yeah, sometimes people in talking to Christians and indeed Christian philosophers, they'll say, look, you're just going to defend your belief no matter what. I mean, you're, you're not going to relinquish this precious little family of speculations that you have, or maybe you're committed to just because your family or your social group is committed and you just can't imagine not believing these things. But you just said, well, here's something, if I found it out, I would say, okay, well, this is a big mistake then. If, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if we knew that, then I wouldn't be a Christian. Uh, that's correct. You know, his, his Christianity is a historical religion. It makes claims that certain events definitely did happen. If you could show me that they didn't, I'd have to conclude that the religion was not the truth. I'd throw in a couple more points, because when I look at certain other religions and cults and so on, I find a common pattern that oftentimes the founder is really most interested in power, sex, and money. I think I'd count that, too. If I thought Jesus or even the apostles were primarily driven by power, sex, and money, I'd, I would say this is not the way a perfect being would uh, go about establishing anything through uh, people like that. Um, I, I think I'd agree with that. And another thing, another thing that would be involved there is that since that's not the picture of Jesus and the apostles you get from the Bible, you would also be saying, in effect, I don't trust the main historical witness we've got for these events. And if it's not trustworthy, I have little reason to believe that they occurred. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we don't have any evidence like that now. So we don't have that disqualification for believing these things. Right. Do you think that another role that reason can play is for Christians to clarify their beliefs and even revise their beliefs about God and the world? Well, historically, it has done that. Uh, you know, Christian theology has unfolded over a long period, and essentially, that's been a process of rational reflection over a long, you know, over, over a long time on the teaching of the Bible by way of largely philosophical tools. So, yes, definitely. Dr. Leftow, much of your work has focused on medieval philosophy. When I was a graduate student in philosophy, one of my professors told me that there was no philosophy in that era, that it was all theology. Do you agree, and what draws you to the philosophy of that era? I, I guess I have to say that that's a dumb opinion, no matter what the guys are for saying. I mean, if you're into, into logic, into philosophy of language, in, into the things that are the most recondite and abstract parts of philosophy, you will find a lot of it in the Middle Ages. But when you look at, for the meatier things, like metaphysics and epistemology, it's, it's all over the place, although sometimes you have to look for it in the cracks of theological works. I guess that might be the one sensible basis he might have had to think that. Uh, if you want to know what Aquinas thought about metaphysics, you're going to be reading books that he conceived of as books of theology. But it's, it's still metaphysics that's in there. It's just that it's, it's put in the service of something else. What interests me about medieval philosophy is 
just that it's philosophy that's most directly engaged with the issues that concern me as a Christian. I got into philosophy because I wanted to understand Christianity better and to defend it. That was what the medieval philosophers were doing with their reason. And so I look to them as good conversation partners in the thing I'm trying to do. So is it just that they refuse to compartmentalize, that they're just, you know, yeah, this is philosophy, but it's also theology. It's just, it's all wrapped up into one bundle? It's not just that. Uh, it's, it's that they put the philosophy very efficiently to work in, in service of the theological argument. So you're always in touch, if, if you're a Christian and you're reading these people, you're always in touch with the things that interest you most. I mean, metaphysics can be fascinating on its own, in, in its own right, uh, but if you're approaching these writers as a Christian looking for a dialogue partner and understanding Christianity better, you want to see the metaphysics put to use in doing that, and they will do that for you. In your essay, in the middle of it, you said, quote, it's not Christian but secular philosophers who have made a radical break with philosophical tradition. What did you mean by that? Atheism as a sort of a philosophical position is a relatively recent innovation. There were some atheists in the classical period, particularly the Epicureans, but the Stoics, the Platonists, the Aristotelians, uh, all believed in deities or a deity. When the Christians came along, it was more of the same. In the whole Middle Ages, uh, the philosophers, whether Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, were always religious believers. Uh, when you moved into the modern period, uh, you look at the, the rationalists were all believers of some sort, even Spinoza, although his beliefs were kind of strange. Among the empiricists, there were Locke and Berkeley. It was only with Hume that you really found a true skeptic. Uh, so by the, by the time you've gone through all those writers, you're well and truly up to almost the end of the 18th century. And still you've had atheists as only a very minority presence. So for these writers before the end of the 18th century, uh, reason was constantly in dialogue with theology and in service of theology and, and concerned with God. Purely secular philosophy, philosophy that has nothing to do with religion intrinsically and doesn't want anything to do with it extrinsically, is something that really doesn't go back much further than the, 18th, than the 19th century. And as a dominant presence in philosophical culture is really uh, not much older, I think, than some time in the 20th century. So in the era you're talking about, people doing theology were actively seeking out what they thought was the best that philosophy could offer. And... They had kind of a backward-looking view about that, right? They, they thought the real greats were in ancient times, mainly Plato and Aristotle. I mean, not to the exclusion of other medievals, but do you find that the same is true today? Do you have theologians knocking on the door of uh, current-day analytic philosophers and saying, you know, what's, what's the best view of time or the best, most, most coherent way to look at free will or to think about divine necessity, things like that? Okay. First, I want to take issue with the claim that medieval philosophers were sort of backward looking in the way they dealt with philosophy. It's true that they started out their thinking by reflecting very carefully on Plato and Aristotle and on any other ancient texts they had to hand. But they developed their thoughts in new and creative ways, even when they were just writing commentaries on them. And it's also true, that, well, Alan of Lille was an early medieval theologian who complained once that Authority has a wax nose, people mold it into any shape they please. Uh, and he meant by that theological authorities, but it applies just as well to philosophical authorities. You know, every medieval philosopher read Aristotle, and every medieval philosopher, remarkably enough, found Aristotle saying exactly what that philosopher himself thought was true. 
Uh, so they used Aristotle as a means to express their own views, but their own views were just as individual and creative as anything you'll find today, by, the, by and large. As far as what theologians today, if, if only the description you gave were true, I mean, if only I'd ever had a theologian knock on my door and say, hey, what do you think? What do you think about this? Theologians are not just, they're not just uninterested in analytic philosophy, they are positively hostile to it. Although there is some sign that this is beginning to change. Uh, it's, it's going to be a long-term cultural shift if it ever really changes in a substantial way. But it's not like they don't have philosophical influence. I mean, I find that theologians are oftentimes very engaged with Schleiermacher or Hegel, but it's 19th century stuff to a large degree. Yeah, yeah. It's not all philosophy. It's analytic philosophy that really bothers them. You know, there are, there are a lot of reasons for this, and, and some of it is just sort of what you might call cultural inertia. I mean, the current, current theology, by and large, traces back to people who started out as Schleiermacher students. And their students, Schleiermacher students taught their students, and their students taught their students, and so on, down until we got the present generation of theologians. And people tend to stay with what they've been trained in, by and large. But beyond that, uh, sort of analytic philosophers and the tradition that, that, that theologians uh, find, find more comfortable uh, take very different views of what Kant achieved. Theologians tend to think that Kant decisively showed that you couldn't do sort of metaphysics or traditional theology in anything like the traditional way, that you had to start theology from the ground up by thinking about human experience and only gradually work your way to thinking about what God might be like in light of human experience. Analytic philosophers are not at all impressed by Kant. As a matter of fact, uh, analytic philosophy started with a concerted revolution against the Kantian tradition as it had developed in the 19th century. So we don't see this kind of stricture as, as in any way binding on us when we think about theology or, or, or philosophy of religion. We do it today largely the way Aquinas did it in his day. We just go out at hammer and tongs using metaphysical and epistemological tools as best we can. Uh, so I think to theologians, they look at us and they see, my gosh, well, these people are like medieval, man. You know, they're, they're getting medieval. <laughs> they're, they're really out of it. They, they don't know all this great stuff that happened with Kant. Uh, and they're just not interested because they think we're just passe. So to go back to my comment about medievals being backward looking, I think I could paraphrase your answer as, well, culturally, the culture had a great respect for these past figures. And that was kind of a starting point for them. And our culture is different. We We tend to have the kind of weird prejudice against what's pre-modern. So that's where they started. But once they got going, it's just philosophy. That's exactly right. It's one direction from which to approach it. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think that they're just endlessly rehashing Plato and Aristotle, although I have to admit, I mean, sometimes I do get aggravated with them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think any philosopher does. And Kant, yeah, there are, there are analytic philosophers who are fans of Kant, I had a class or two with them, but, you know, I wasn't bowled over. I didn't think that Kant had swept the field, you know, and now we have to do everything in a Kantian way. I just, no. I wasn't buying a lot of his arguments. And what you described of him, you know, changing everything and now we have to do it the Kantian way, that's, that's a very 19th century evaluation of Kant. But that's correct. Yeah, I guess we just don't agree. Yeah. The theologians who are uninterested in analytic philosophy are by and large people who, by chain of descent, go back to those in the 19th century who were impressed by Kant that way. And that has sort of come over into the English language because German theologians, who of course were much impressed by Kant, were 
the big names in 20th century theology. So people with that philosophical background uh, became the interlocutors for, inter for English language theologians. One of the most famous parts of Kant is the part in the critique of pure reason where he, in his own mind, he's basically slaying all the traditional arguments for God's existence. And um, I'll bet you're like me in that when you look at that, okay, well, there's some interesting criticisms there, but you know, there's probably going to be answers to a lot of these criticisms. I think those few pages may be among the most overrated few pages in the history of philosophy. <laughs> Theologians will tell you Kant killed all natural theology in those uh -huh. pages. There's nothing more to be done. And my own experience, well, I've been hacking over those pages very closely over the last year because I'm writing a book on the ontological argument. And, you know, when I read the five or six pages when he deals with the, where he deals with the ontological argument, it, it, it's, like it, it's like wet tissue paper. It just falls apart in your hands. It has a surface clarity, but when you really try to understand how the objections work, you you just you find that you're not getting it, or you find that well, it's bad art. You do get it completely, but they're just bad arguments. They're just bad arguments, also very unclearly expressed. But when you get when you get when you sort of isolate what you think the argument might be, it, it turns out not to be impressive. Dr. Leftow, at the end of your autobiographical essay, you reflect on God and goodness and on Jesus. Can you read us that part? Sure. I've said that I'm a philosopher because I'm a Christian and want to understand better the things I believe. But there's also a connection that runs the other way. I became a Christian because I admired some Christians and asked why they had the qualities I admired in them. In asking this, I was asking what are really philosophical questions. What must I do to be good? What is goodness? The writer best known for finding in Christianity the answers to such philosophical questions is St. Augustine. The answers I found turned out rather like his, and I'll record them. What is goodness? Being good is being like God. It is turning toward God. We're basically mirrors. We reflect into the world whatever we turn ourselves toward. If you aim at money, the world will see only money when it looks at you. If you aim at power, the world will see only power when it looks at you, and it will run for cover or use you. If you aim at fame, you turn toward others to have them look at you. But when they do, they don't really notice you. They just admire a reflection of themselves in you. If you simply love yourself, you are a mirror just reflecting itself, and the world will see nothing when it looks at you. Good people reflect God's goodness. They're turned toward God whether they know it or not. All they have of goodness is an influx of God from God, whether they know it or not. Those who look at them see the likeness of God. Mirrors do shine, but they shine with a borrowed light. What must I do to be good? If being good is being like God, those who strive to be good must seek to be godlike. How can human beings know what it is to be godlike? What does godlikeness look like in a human life? I was and am persuaded that in Jesus Christ, God showed us this by revealing his nature in human flesh. Could a God who cares about human goodness do less? If God comes to us in Christ, the best route to goodness is to meet him there. 
Dr. Leftow, I'm sure you would agree that a big part of the Christian life is imitating Jesus. In your view, what does that look like in the case of a professional philosopher? It has to do, I think, a lot with how you treat people. You try to encourage. That doesn't mean you don't show people where they've gone wrong. And you may do that in fairly blunt terms. But you always try and put it in the context of here's how you can do better. And if you can honestly say this, I believe you can do better and I want to help you do better. That's the way I try to treat my students. It's also in terms of the way we deal with our colleagues. It means, for example, that when you read a paper for a journal, you try and write full and helpful comments so that the person can improve their work. It means that when you discuss philosophy with people, you're patient and you're charitable. You try and put the best construction on their arguments. If they haven't put their arguments well, you try and make them stronger before you try and answer them because you want to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I suppose the golden rule looks that way among other ways if you try and live by it in Christianity. And all that is, I think, part of the way that Jesus would behave if he were on earth still and, and acting as a philosopher. I've seen this in various guises in, in the philosophers I've known. I won't mention names, but I know of a very eminent philosopher who has a considerable temper, and I have seen him strive very hard to control it for Jesus' sake, and I admire that in him tremendously. I had a friend in uh, graduate school who went to school where there was a, a major Christian philosopher, and one day he asked this person if they would eat lunch in the cafeteria with them, and you know the student was terrified. There's this imposing, obviously brilliant loud figure and now this guy wants me to have lunch oh no you know what have i done uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah turned out he wanted to know how how the student thought the class was going <laughs> and uh, and they never forgot it and they told me about it you know years later it just yeah. left it left a deep mark it's not normal philosopher behavior it's not normal professor behavior yeah normally there's a lot of posturing and you know, look how smart I am. Check me out. and I'm going to yeah. slap you down and make you look bad. And don't talk back to me, you little student, you. And <laughs> Right. And, I, and I've seen some very bad examples of that. But the Christian in philosophy should be just the opposite. Should be willing to admit where he's wrong, where he doesn't know, where the student's done better. You know, humility is one of the major virtues we need to emulate. And that, again, is just a matter of being like Jesus. I think that a reason for a lot of Christian anti-intellectualism is that they associate arguing with quarreling, with nastiness, with division, and so on. But you're talking about arguing as, you know, an act of friendship, basically. Well, it's partly an act of friendship. You know, philosophers, I think, are friendly piranhas. Uh, we're always trying to nibble away what isn't good in the other person's position. But ultimately, that's a benefit, and we can think of it as giving them a benefit and behave as if we're doing that. <laughs> Beneficent piranhas. I, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting analogy. <laughs> I'm really distracted by that image in my mind now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, next, time, next time we're together, you can look at my teeth and see what you think. <laughs> I'm aware there are some medical conditions where, you know, you have an injury, say a wartime injury, and they have in the past at least 
put uh, maggots into your open wound. Oh, dear. And the maggots will eat all the rotting flesh out, and then they just take the maggots out, and it's ready to heal. So maybe philosophers are friendly maggots. I would much rather be a piranha. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Dr. Leftow, thanks for talking with us. It's been my pleasure. This week's thinking music was The Narrative Changes by Revolution Void. You can hear or download this track in its entirety at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Before we go, I just wanted to say how great it is to receive some love from my home country this week via PayPal. By my home country, of course, I mean Texas. So thank you to Ron in Texas and also to Keegan in Texas for your donations via PayPal. I really appreciate it, gentlemen. I also really appreciate those of you that have answered the call to give us some reviews in the iTunes store. So we got one this week from John in Canada. He says, quote, thoroughly discussed theological and Christological topics, including interviews with some big names in their respective fields. If you're into Trinity theories or subjects related to them, then this is for you, end quote. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Another five-star review is in the U.S. store from a user named Brooklyn Ease. This user says, quote, If you are interested in expanding your theological reflection beyond that of a study Bible, this podcast will blow your mind. Tuggy does an amazing job and interacts with a variety of fascinating minds. Highly, highly recommended regardless of your Christological adherence, end quote. And user named ANTHCP from Australia says, Quote, a must listen for anyone with even the slightest interest in religion. You won't regret subscribing, end quote. I also just found a review that was left back in July by a user named Roman in the Norway iTunes store. Roman says, quote, the best theology podcast I have found so far. Dale goes very deep into various theological subjects without being over technical. Anyone interested in theology from an analytical perspective should take a listen, end quote. Folks, thank you so much. Please keep the podcast reviews coming in the iTunes store. Not just a star rating, but also a review. That's really helpful and is going to help more people find this podcast. Thanks for all your support and encouragement. I'm really pleased to say that next week we'll have Dr. Leftow again, and this time he'll be talking about the method that philosophers call perfect being theology. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.